לשידור ישיר ממחנה רמה בברקשיירס. כל רמה, מאה ושתיים שלוש, Another edition of Parson Talk. I'm Rabbi Elliot Malamit in Highland Park at the Highland Park Conservative Temple Congregation on Chimet. And joining me, my good friends, Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanowski, Anshe Chesed, New York City, Rabbi Barry Chesler, Long Island. The three of us were are in different locations, in our customary locations this week, which is all the well because one of these days somebody's going to come down with COVID. We hope not. We're all doing okay. You're doing okay. New York City. So far, so good. Okay. So far, so good. We've got a lot of COVID in my community, though, so we send Misha Berach Absolutely. to all those folks. Refuah Shlema to all those who are watching and listening to us who may or may not be on the verge. Okay, Bishalach. This is, I don't want to say it's the most important parsha. I do want to say it's an amazing parsha, but, but it's certainly a climactic parsha. I want to propose that this is a parsha that defines the story, obviously, because we have a we have in this moment the this parsha, the moment, the splitting of the sea. They have to emerge on the other side. It's by definition a new era. But first, we are we ha- we're trapped. We're trapped in the desert. Um, can you take us into the predicament that Israel finds itself? If just as a way of kind of summarizing the narrative up until. Uh, you know, when they start complaining, because I think we want to focus a little bit on their, their, it's really the first complaint, but Barry, just for the sake of on the spot, what's going on in the narrative? So I think the way to understand this is that the Israelites are on what seems to be perhaps an 11 day hike. And they set out in good cheer, probably singing old camp songs. <laughs> And We're clearly singing Chad Gadya from the end of the Seder from the night before. Exactly. Either, and then at some point they hear the noise of horses, right? Which they recognize as chariots, and they get very nervous because looking ahead of them, they see a body of water that seems impassable. And behind them, they see the growing cloud of the Egyptian cavalry. All right. So verse 10 expresses exactly what you said. Verse 10, it says, Pharaoh is getting uh, closer. This is chapter 14, verse 10. The Israelites cast their eyes. They look up. And behold, there's Egypt behind them. And they are terribly Afraid, and so they scream to God. We don't know what they say. We don't know how they're doing it. They 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 cry. And so here, let's just do this verse. Even though we may have done it last year, was it for lack of graves in Egypt that you took us out of Egypt? That you took us to die in the desert? What did you do to us? 
Lo mimitzrayim, to take us out of Egypt. We told you, Bimitzrayim, in Egypt, saying, Stop, leave us alone. And we'll, we'll, we'll serve Egypt. It's really great for us to be slaves to Egypt. It's better to serve as a slave than it is to die in the desert. Okay, so let's break it apart for two seconds. Jeremy, the humor or the pathos or the irony, the sarcasm, which which part would you like? <laughs> yes. <laughs> this, is defi- this is definitely great Jewish humor, right? Uh, oh, Mr. Big Shot, you brought us out here to die. Today. Well, not enough graves back in Egypt. So, <laughs> so they... They use that they they use that sarcasm, um, but there is a, a great deal of pathos too, because the people uh, they they tell him, uh, not without a grain of truth at least, um, you know we said just leave us alone and let us remain slaves to Pharaoh in Egypt. They are so beaten down that they can't imagine yet anything other than the choice between dying in the desert or dying back in in the rich country of Egypt. So. Well- so their frame of reference is Egypt, and they're still Egyptian or Egyptianized. In other words, we think of the Exodus as the time we call it Zaman Cherutania, the season of our freedom. But our ancestors who actually left Egypt did not feel free at this point. And what appeals to them is life in Egypt, because for them the alternative is death in, in the Midbar, in the wilderness. So I, I want to suggest, I want to offer this reading, and I want you to kind of agree or disagree or debate on this, which is that we, we are in a trajectory of a, a learning curve for Moshe, and that and the people are on a learning curve as well. And, and humor at its core uh, is about conflict, and it's about uh, power in some way. You know, you, you, you can uh, destabilize someone with humor. You can... Uh, challenge someone with humor and that the very fact that the first this is the first complaint and it comes out in such an acidic way means that the relationship has to change here and that and that they're there it's like i want to say it's almost like they're they're an insult comic right and moshe has to kind of figure out how to deal with this and and, and a new equilibrium of the relationship has to emerge following this. It's a very caustic kind of statement to them. Um, and Moshe really, Moshe is learning here also. Moshe doesn't know what to do with them. Um, and, 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 I, I, and says... I like, I like it a lot. Okay. I, I, like, I like what you said a lot. First of all, I think that everything in the Torah, uh, I think the overall scope of the Torah is um, a, a learning curve. And I, I would say that that goes from the, you know, I, I know, Elliot, that you like the, the book by Richard Friedman, The Disappearance of God, yes. that, that God starts off in the Torah in the very beginning of Genesis as incredibly present in their lives. Adam and Eve are little children in the garden. God is a parent in the garden and then leads them progressively until at the end of the Tanakh, God is much less present and people are much more independent. I think that is a great description of the overall arc of the book. I think it's true about, um, about the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that leads them through the desert. Um, it's, it, the Baal Shem Tov had the image of the parent who's walking backwards holding the toddler child's hands. 
And at a certain point, the parent steps away and the child discovers that, that, they're, that they're able to walk on their own. And I do think that's an overall vector for the Torah. I think it's true about the people and their capacity for independence. I think it's true about Moshe and his capacity to, um, to be a leader. And I love the image you said of the insult comic. So let's imagine that Don Rickles is the Jew who is confronting Moshe at this moment. <laughs> so say this line, as if you're Don Rickles. <laughs> Were there not... Was it for a lack of graves in Egypt that you took us out to die here? <laughs> what are you doing? Larry David. Larry David is the, is the role of the Israelites here. That's right. No, the, the Israeli Hayyudim um, Ba'im uh, does this very well. They, they, they satirize this scene very well. And they, they picture Israel as, as always being complaining. And, I, and, you know, last week I said, you know, the miracle of the Exodus is that they actually leave without complaining. And it doesn't take long for them to start complaining. They, they're so, complaining here. There is, I, I like what you said about the learning curve, but there is one character here who doesn't seem to learn, and that's God. All God can do is perform miracles. And it kind of glosses over, I think, one of the central moral problems in the Torah, which is where was God before he shows up in chapter three of Sefer Shemot? Right? The people are enslaved, they're complaining, and at some point, God takes note of them. Where was he before them? And as we track the Israelites' complaints in this Parsha, God is going to perform a miracle at each turning point. So we, we should go into that for a second, but I, I, I want to just kind of raise the possibility that, that maybe God is also learning as, as well. And that well, so because of that, the point I wanted to make in reference to what you said is that we sometimes give... Moses uh, a bum rap because Moses doesn't necessarily have the tools. He's in a new position after all, even though he is relatively advanced in years. And God is not actually helping him learn. He's not training him to be a leader. Exactly. He's just telling him what to do. Yeah, and Moses, I'm going to differ with you on this one. I'm going to differ with you on this one in a couple of ways. Um, because I think that the overall trajectory is is, as I said, I think that uh, that God is also learning how to deal with these people and is being an educator. I mean, to the extent that, you know, the Rabboni Shalom, the master of the cosmos, uh, is, is the master of the cosmos. So I, I don't, you know, want to be irreverent about this, but I think that the relationship is evolving. And just to give a couple of examples, like what, what you said, Barry, about, I mean, it's obviously a moral problem of human suffering at every moment one wishes to say, you know, will you not, will the judge of all the earth not do justly look at these suffering people? You should take action there. They're big G. But I think it is possible to read, first of all, that the king will answer us on the day that we call, that the people's dissatisfaction, said this, that the people's crying out to God indicates their dissatisfaction with their predicament indicates the possibility that they can imagine something alternative and that that is the trigger which gets the divine attention. And so that may, maybe where is God? God comes in when human beings realize that a, that a different possibility is true. But I also think that uh, in a scene that we were speaking about before the, the recording began, maybe we'll get to in a moment, 
at a certain point, whether it's Moshe or whether it's the people who are frozen, paralyzed, crying to God, help us, save us, God says to Moses, you got to teach them to walk forward on their own um, and help them develop a sense of their own agency, which I think is true and uh, which I think does happen here in this in this scene. Um, and then finally, which we may reach, the, the battle with Amalek at the end of the parasha, I think gives us a sense of powerful Israelites and not just weak ones waiting for a miracle. So I want to I uh, just hold off on that question of, of how they respond to it. And just take us into, you know, just kind of put put a, close the page on on the on the shot of the text as to what is going on here in the text, you know, frame by frame. But uh, the rabbis create in this moment uh, midrashim that are absolutely they're gorgeous, they're they're literary gems, and they they say they reveal so many different truths about human behavior. Jeremy, I want you to to just if you can encapsulate. There's a midrash that says that that when the people were um, screaming, uh, they actually divided into four factions, uh, and the four factions. I mean, and, and this reflects a certain kind of truth because it's it you can't they couldn't have all said at once you know the same thing. So <laughs> do, do you recall offhand? I, I wrote it down here, but yeah, uh, I, have, I have it here. Okay. Okay, this this midrash appears in the the book called the Mechelta, the Rabbi Ishmael. It's a Mishnaic era uh, midrash about the, the book of Exodus, and it says that the, that um, when uh, when Israel reaches the sea and they're in trouble and Egypt's come behind them and, and trapping them, um, they they split into four groups. Okay, one of them said, "Let's let's just cast ourselves into the sea. In other words, commit suicide." We're trapped here. There's nothing we can do. One, one second group says, um, okay, you caught us, Egypt. Take us back to slavery. You won. Uh, a third group says, we're going to fight back. We're going to have a, you know, however futile it may be, we're going to have a war against the Egyptians. And the fourth one says, we're, gonna, we're just going to scream, which I would take to mean uh, pray, pray to God. So you have four kinds of impossible responses. Uh, in, in despair to kill yourself, in, in despair to uh, allow yourself to be taken prisoner, in despair, a different kind of despair, to go on a suicide mission, or just to give up on the human world and turn to God. And about each of this, Midrash says, taking Moses's words in, the, in, the, in this very verse, um, uh, uh, Moses says to the people, Altirau, do not be afraid. Hitiatzbu, stand firm. Uruet Yeshuat Adunai, behold the delivery of the Lord. Asher ye aselachem hayom, which will happen for you today. Ki asher itemet mitzrayim hayom, for as you have seen Egypt today, lotosifu lirotam adulam, you'll never see them again. Adunai ilachem lachem, God will fight for you. Veatem tacharishun, nashara. Uh, and then God says to Moses, why are you crying to me? Speak to the children of Israel and, and tell them to start marching. So I read that Midrash very interestingly. I think it's kind of insightful about uh, the different ways which people can, re can react to crises in which they think they're really in trouble um, with, with different flavors of despair. Um, and, and God saying to them in the way that, that I was alluding to before, you, you guys are not powerless here. 
you don't have to kill yourself in the sea and you don't have to, to just give up and go to slavery. So you, Between you and me, we got a plan. You know, as you're, as you're talking here, I'm, I'm recalling, and it's a book I know you read, Who, who Will Write Our History, Emmanuel Ringelblum and Onyx yeah. Shabbat. And so there's a little moment in that, in that book where he describes, where he's quoted me saying, as, as before the ghetto uprising, there, was, there were actually debates among the people as to what to do. And, and it, it seems as if those debates kind of coalesce around these four positions. One which says, we have, you know, there's no hope. Let's come, you know, we're going to commit suicide. We might as well commit suicide. Others will say, look, you know, we'll do whatever we can to accommodate. Others will say, no, we got to make war. And, and, and the others say, we have nothing to do but except for praying. And, and, you know, the Midrash really is expressive of, of reality in the sense that the rabbis really understand that when you're in this despairing moment, you know, as factions, you could go in different directions. And, and uh, that's, that's amazing. Absolutely just, just, so just so everybody knows, uh, our, our many listeners here, that uh, this book, Who Will Write Our History by Sam Cassow, he's a professor at Trinity University in Connecticut. Uh, the, the book is about the Oneg Shabbos archives. Emmanuel Ringelblum was a, was a historian uh, in the Warsaw Ghetto, and he and his colleagues gathered up every scrap of paper. Every, every, people wrote down accounts of what they saw, and they gathered up, and they buried them in these metal milk crates. And after the war, I think there were, I think there were like five in all, and four were found. Okay. And so the stuff that we know about the Warsaw Ghetto is largely because these uh, this this brigade of historians, a- amateur and professional historians, journalists, eyewitnesses, they wrote everything down and and on whatever scraps of paper they had. So the things that we know about how the Jews experienced the Warsaw Ghetto and much of the stuff that we know about the uprising comes from what was what was found in those milk crates. No, it's 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 absolutely and there's a film on it as well. Okay, so so the people, you know, back into the text now. You know, we, 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 we've gone the midrash. The midrash reflects a certain reality of, of the way that human beings react to crisis. But, but I, I want to give you a reading or propose a reading that when Moshe says to them as a response, "Al do not be afraid. Be, you know, stand up and see God's God's salvation." I actually think that this is not a particularly effective thing to say. Um, I, I, I did a little research about, you know, great coaching speeches. Great coaches always say to the people, you got this, you got this in you, you can do it, you're going to be able to do this, you know, this is our time, etc., etc., etc. What Moshe does is basically, you know, highlight the people's passivity he says, Adonai yelachem lachem, God will fight for you, v'atem tacharishun, and I'm not sure how to translate that or to interpret that, you, you'll be quiet, or you, you'll, you'll, you'll be back in awe, you know, you'll be silenced by God's great might. In other words, this is, again, a point on the learning curve where the people are helpless. Barry, you, 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 you refer to the people as being in a state of paralysis, and and that state of paralysis requires the divine intervention that 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 we see unfolding here. I mean, maybe you can elaborate on that for a second. So, as we walk our way, as it were, through the parsha, the Israel doesn't seem to act as much as be acted upon. And you know, I'm reminded of the piyut from the High Holidays, Kihine Kachomer. They're like the piece of pottery in the potter's hands. Clay. And 
the piece of clay, right. And it seems to me that they are so beaten down that they have to be motivated just to take what we might call baby steps. So as we'll find out at the end, there are 600,000 fighting men in this group of Israelites that have left. And yet they behave like little kids, to use Jeremy's image, being drawn by their parents to take their first steps. And maybe that's how freedom begins, with those first baby steps that you have to be instructed to take because you cannot take them on your own. Okay, so so let's let's fast forward now, you know, fast forward a couple of, of minutes. We have the uh, Moses putting his hand over the sea, the sea splits. It's, it's a very complicated text. Uh, there are probably a lot of layers of this text that are kind of mushed together. Uh, we, we read the text and, and figure out that Moshe places his hands over the water. The people walk into the water. There's a, the cloud of God functions as a barrier at the rear of the people and at the advance of the Egyptians. The people of Israel, the children of Israel, come into the sea on the dry land. Very exultant uh, explanation here. The water is a wall on their right and on their left. The Egyptians chase after them. It's at the end. Bashmoret Boker is the, the last watch of the evening, right? It's the, the pre dawn sector of the of the, of time god glances at the the egyptian camp with a pillar of fire the the egyptians are confused their wheels of chariots are stuck in the in the in the mud and uh they want to run back and that's at that point that god says to moses put your arm over the sea and let the waters cover the 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 Egyptians, and Moses does. So, it. and the the Egyptians are stirred up like soup in the water. Barry. So, what I always like to say when we come to this passage is that the Torah actually gives two separate explanations for the miracle at the Sea of Reeds, and explanation number one, of course, Moses will raise his staff. This is the same staff that he took to the court of Pharaoh, the staff that he had when he first encountered God at the burning bush, and the water split. But a little bit later, it says that God caused an east wind to blow all night. And we're invited to think that this is actually a natural explanation rather than the miraculous explanation. And what speaks to me here is something I often think about, which comes from Martin Buber, that a miracle is not a supernatural event, but rather our interpretation or our experience of the event. That nature works the way nature works. That's always been the case, at least according to Booper, and I follow him in this. And it's the way that our ancestors experienced the event that made it a miracle. But when you were recounting the event, it seems to me that the real miracle is not so much the splitting of the Sea of Reeds, it's that the water comes back over the Egyptians because that is what is going to provide the end to the episode. Mm -hmm. and, and not that the Israelites went in without complaining. 
Well, so, uh, you know, we sometimes gloss over that, but if nature doesn't return to its proper course, uh, however we're going to understand the splitting of the sea, then they're not safe, right? They're, they're, they need the dry land to cross over, but they need the water to drown the Egyptians as well. Yeah. Right. If the water stays dry, if the it stays dry, then the Egyptians will. This is this is this is the humor of the Dianu song. If you had led us into the Red Sea, but not allowed us to pass through on dry land, Dianu. What? <laughs> <laughs> if you had if you had led us into the sea and passed dry land, but not not caught the Egyptians in the sea, Dianu. Why would that be Dianu? That would be awful. Then we would be back, be back in slaves in Egypt. Can we can we talk for a second about the verse that just precedes the song, Vayar Yisrael et Ayadagdola, or you may want to take a verse back. I'll, I'll leave it up to you. Israel sees the great hand, Asher and now this Vayiru Ha'am et Adonai, the people fear God or revere God, Vayaminu Badonai, they believed in God, Uve Moshe Abdo. I just want to kind of linger on that for a second. And I mean, we, we, this is part of our daily liturgy. This is part, you know, we, we recite the Song of the Sea as part of the Shakrit. We, of course, highlight uh, a, a verse uh, in Mari, Michamocha Ba'alim Adonai. The Song of the Sea obviously, uh, you know, plays a very, very significant role within uh, the Torah, within Jewish liturgy, within the imagination, within the Bidra. I mean, there's, there's lots and lots and lots we can say about it. But Take me in that if if you are if you are the Israelite and you are I mean can you can you do a little bit of psychodrama here for for us what do you see and what are you experiencing well, and what's going on there? Barry, so this is why you have to take the verse proceeding because they cross through, they turn around and what do they see? A lot of dead Egyptians on the shore, presumably the far shore, and then they look again. Or they see, and they understand that this was the hand of God. That it's not just the dead Egyptians, but this was done by God's salvation, act of salvation. And this is, I think, illustrates Buber's point, but this is what drives religion. Religion is about how we see the world. And we see much more, I think, through religious eyes than we do otherwise. Because we have to allow our senses, we have to be able to go beyond our physical senses to understand what it is that we actually experience. Okay, so Jeremy, wanna, you want to just give us a, a meditation on this? Or, or I'll go. Anywhere. Well, I would just, I would say, I mean, I want to say something different. Um, not about the question about the, the, the verse exactly, but um, the way it functions in the liturgy. Yeah. In, in addition to being part of the daily psuche de Zimra, the, the sort of morning morning poetry and psalms that are that are said before the main service, um, it is the end of the the blessing after the Shema, the Gaal Yisrael, both at Shacharit and then at evening. In evening, there's one more blessing that follows. But what I would say, you know, the way the way it it um, it, it functions maybe just for me, but the way I think it's designed to function is this affirmation that, um, that actually sometimes God actually does work in, work in the world. 
and that sometimes slaves go free and that sometimes the oppressors uh, and the tyrants don't catch the poor people fleeing. And that's kind of what makes the Amidah possible. Because you go right from, you know, Micha Mocha, you know, you sing with the people of Israel that, that, that God actually rules and that God is wondrous. And then you say your Amidah, which means that your prayer experience is contextualized in moments of actual, like you try to place yourself in the moment of actual deliverance. Um, and so then you can pray without thinking, man, this is stupid. Like, is anyone listening? No, it's, it's an affirmation. It's supposed to, it's supposed to inculcate in a davener that this is um, an address to a God who, you know, is actually listening, available, and has sometimes, it's the God of Israel. Okay, you're actually davening to the God of the Tanakh, to the God of Israel. Now, whether or not that's always possible for us in 2022, because the world is very different and there are all kinds of things that we think differently about than ancient people thought. Um, I guess I leave that as an open question, but what I think the liturgy is designed to do by, 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 by adjoining the Song of the Sea to the Amidah is give people a boost and say, the God of Israel, you know, lo yanum velo yishan, does not slumber or sleep and is attentive to you and your needs. That's fascinating. I think, I think, there's also there maybe you know in that moment you're saying that that a person who's worshiping at that moment has an echo of the of that first redemption of that of that moment and and isn't it interesting that that the architects of the sidur are are placing for us an echo of uh, the guula the 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 splitting of the sea right at the moment where we are making our supplications before God I, I want to take it into just one little maybe you know uh, 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 another direction, which is by Yar Yisrael and Mitzrayim met. They they are precisely at the boundary of life and death, and so uh, Egypt now is definitively dead, and Egypt is always going to represent death, and Israel is always going to represent life, notwithstanding the fact that the text doesn't come out and say Chayim, but it's implicit. They're alive. They're alive. And and the punchline is Vayaminu Badonai of Moshe Abdo, maybe and and this is you know the little the little vort here, which is that, you know that's what life is. That's what that's what makes you alive. That that the ability to trust that you can go forward, uh, and and that you have a direction in your life, and that there is what to follow. Um, that that in fact gives you life. And so maybe uh, as you stand at the boundary of you know the 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 um, the prayers uh, leading into the Shemona Esra. You are at the boundary of life and death as well. That is to say, I am aware now of all the life-giving forces of faith and prayer, and and all the things that I need to do in order to achieve a, a full life. I mean, that would be the homily. That would be my. my well, the homily goes an additional step. It's because the people now trust or have confidence in God and Moses that. Moses and the people can sing to God. Indeed. Ah. And the song follows immediately thereafter. So talk for a second, then the song is not just a kind of rah-rah, we won, they died, uh, 
exaltation. It's not a. It's not just a a war song. It's actually- well. It's interesting because uh, perhaps the most problematic phrase in the song is Adonai Yishmochama for you that God is a, a, a man of war, and they're not referring to the fish there, even <laughs> though in the Sea of Reeds perhaps it might be found. And there is a lot of violent image imagery in the song in the song, but I think it's more about God's greatness being of a different order. And, you know, boxing has sort of fallen into disrepute, but there is a kind of beauty in boxing beyond two people beating themselves silly. And people who enjoy boxing can see some beauty in it. And I think that, in a sense, that's what we're invited to see here about God. Because, you know, let's face it, it's a violent scene that the Israelites have just encountered. When they turn around, as you said, they see death, and that's a negative. And yet they can praise God in, I, I think we could say, glorious language. It's, I, I think it's so complicated. We, we are looking at uh, these scenes through, through our eyes, and, and you know, we've watched plenty of our own you know, war movies and things like that. Um, and you know, clearly, if you if you Saving Private Ryan, for example, the opening scenes of Private Ryan, and then there's a kind of stillness that that comes over uh, you know the cliffs of Normandy. Uh, uh, I doubt that they they wanted to jump into song. I mean, that that's at least how how we are watching this. It's it's just so complicated. I don't know, Jeremy, you want to have a thought about this? Well, I do. I do think that that. That the that the glorification of God is Ishmael Chama. I mean, it, it just it doesn't go down easy. Um, you know, uh, the messianic world is a place where uh, the lion, the, the you know, the leopard will lie down with the lamb, and the the bear, like the cow, will, will eat straw. And so the the messianic world ultimately we want. You know, El Gibor Aviad Sar Shalom. The Christians call Jesus the Prince of Peace because they're quoting this verse from Isaiah. Sar Shalom is the is the messianic figure, the Prince of Peace. Like that's the future that we want, and we don't just want God to to smite the hell out of our enemies. Um, we want a different sort of transformational peace. Uh, so I do think that this is a little hard going for for me as a contemporary reader. Um, that said, I, I, I do know that we are telling a story about the defeat of an oppressor and a tyrant. And so I can totally get how it works narratively that, um, that you know, people pass through and they want to sing, um, you know, for their, for their triumph and their joy. Um, we are the people who got saved in this. And so when they say, Sus that God, that God cast the horse and the rider down to, well, it was the other guy's horse and rider. So, so it kind of works for us. But I'll tell you, there's one thing that I love about this. There's a, uh, towards the end of the song, Adya Avoram Ha Adunai, Adya Avoram Zukanita. There's this, uh, this is biblical locution of repeating a phrase. It's like, I, th- I think the technical rhetorical term is apostrophe or something. Parallelism. Like Parallelism. Um, but, but the, the Adya Avor part is, is, until Adya Avor Amcha Adunai, Adya Avor Zukanita, until they pass over 
your people, O Lord, until pass over this people that you that you have have made. Um, there's a great Gemara about this in Brachot that says um, that there was uh, destined for the people a, a similar miracle to the crossing of the Red Sea. Uh, our, our listeners may know that, that crossing the Jordan River is described in the book of Joshua with all the same words as the crossing of the Red Sea. And the Jordan River, by the way, back in pre-modern times was like a river, a river, not like the little stream that we see today. Um, and so you have, you have that. And the Talmud says that there was to be a similar kind of crossing in the day of Ezra when they were passing back from Babylonian exile back to the Holy Land. And, uh, and you know, the people just quite, weren't quite worthy of it. So I like that because that Adya Avor Amcha Adunai refers to the first crossing, Moses, children of Israel, Miriam, leaving Egypt. That was the moment that they totally deserved it. They totally got it. They were totally blessed. And then there's Adya Avor, the second Adya Avor, refers to what should have been in later biblical history and has still not happened yet, meaning that there's a second Adya Avor still to happen in the world. And we're kind of waiting for it and we're kind of hoping for it. And so to me, it really speaks in a nice way to um, the rather bloody reality here, but you know, some, some other yet rescuing, some other yet Yeshua to come, or Geulah to come, some other redemption or, or salvation to come uh, that, that maybe is even more surpassing that'll take us to the era of peace, something like that. That's my homily for today. Man. Wow. Well we're said. We're like professional rabbis or something, aren't yeah, we? We are professional Get rabbis. And we, we go on too long because we're, we're only halfway <laughs> through the Parsha. And we, this is where we, we, have to, we have to conclude here. We haven't even touched the complaining and the mana and the slav and the, and the war amalek at the end, all of which is worthy of hours and hours of discussion. But we are so, so thankful that you have joined us for this half hour of a conversation. You can see that, that we really get going here and uh, have lots to say about it, lots to think about it, many, many questions about this, this, um, this great story, this great text and what makes it so great. So, until next time, we want to say Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for listening and thank you for watching and we'll see you next time on another edition of Parsha Shabbat Shalom.